0: Do you know what a paleontologist is? I mean, I've seen movies. Raptors, T-Rex. But do you know what a paleontologist does? Hmm, well, dig in the dirt to find bones? And then go to dinosaur theme parks built by eccentric millionaires? Uh, yes to the first part, no to the second. You know that movie isn't a documentary, right? I mean, of course. I just wanted to make sure that future explorers listening knew that as well. We do this for the youth, Manaza. Okay. Well, the youth should know that paleontologists do much more than just dig in the dirt. I'm Gabby Salazar. And I'm Anaza Alam. And we're National Geographic Explorers. And we get the question all the time, how do you become an explorer? And what does an explorer do? Well, we're going to tell you. Today we're talking with Aubrey Roberts, who is a paleontologist. And I definitely already knew that means more than digging in the ground for bones. But they do dig for dinosaur bones, right? Well, kind of. Many paleontologists do dig up dinosaur bones, but they also dig up other prehistoric animals that aren't really dinosaurs, like plesiosaurs. Aubrey can tell you about that.
1: So I study plesiosaurs, which are kind of unusual because they are they're not dinosaurs, but they are a reptile group that lived at the same time as the dinosaurs, but they swam in the sea. So these are long-necked plesiosaurs, so they have super long necks, tiny little heads with tiny little brains, and they swam around in the sea with four paddles, which is quite unusual because there's nothing around today that swims around with four paddles.
0: Wait! Why aren't plesiosaurs considered dinosaurs? Plesiosaurs and several other creatures, including crocodiles, are considered archosaurs. The difference is that dinosaurs stood straight upright like a bird, with their legs going straight down, And archosaurs had what's called a sprawling stance, similar to the way that modern lizards and crocodiles walk today. That must have been a great evolutionary advantage. It seems like it's easier to run with your legs directly under you than out to the side. Exactly. But legs out to the side is not why Aubrey studies plesiosaurs, right?
1: Like every single sort of kid and Every person that's sort of interested in paleontology wants to like look into dinosaurs, thinks dinosaurs is cool, but plesiosaurs are just as unusual in the way that we know nothing really about them. They have no living relatives, so we we don't have anything that we can compare them to. So they're just a complete mystery to us. We don't know how they swam. We don't know how they ate. So all of these little mysteries are little things to solve which makes it, them very interesting.
0: Aubrey told us a little bit about what we do know about the plesiosaurs, and it's pretty wild.
1: The long-necked plesiosaurs that I study, they are very odd in the fact that their whole mouth is basically like a giant fish trap system. So they have really long, sticky-out teeth that overlap with each other so that they can sort of sift through, like... Um, sort of muddy sea bottom to try and sort of trap things in the sea bottom or just sort of catch fish or squid and um, so they look really weird with sticky out teeth but it is quite an effective weapon for for eating with they also swim with four paddles which there's no other animal that really does that I mean the turtle sort of does it but not properly so I've actually got a friend that He's an engineer and he built a robot plesiosaur to try and work out how they could swim. Because we don't know, like, did they swim with both paddles at the same time? Did they have one up, one down? We have no idea. So he built basically a robot plesiosaur to test this.
0: (laughs) So Aubrey's saying that you don't have to be a paleontologist to study plesiosaurs. You can also be an engineer.
1: Exactly. He's an engineer by trade. Also, why would you swim around in the sea with a massively not long neck? Super weird to do. I mean, imagine swimming in a swimming pool with a broomstick stuck out in front of you. It doesn't seem like a very good way to swim at all, but they did manage it somehow. So why did they do that? This is a question that we're trying to sort of answer.
0: And the part of the plesiosaur she really wanted to see was the skull because,
1: well, they're
0: really small compared to the plesiosaur, that is.
1: If you imagine this plesiosaur specimen that was just lying, well-preserved into the ground, just going into the mountainside, it's about five and a half meters long in total.
0: Wow, that's about 18 feet.
1: The skull of that specimen is 20 centimeters long.
0: That's less than eight inches. That's about the size of two bagels. And I would know. I'm a New Yorker. Just sort of... We
1: were so excited because we really wanted to find the skull. We were just sort of like going vertebrae, so neck vertebrae after neck vertebrae. So following the neck in because they have really long necks. So there's like two meters of neck that we were just going bit by bit. And then we got to the end and there wasn't a skull there. (laughs) And we were like, what has gone wrong? Like, where is it? We deserve this skull. Like, we've tried so hard. And we just sat there in utter despair in this muddy puddle that was this excavation site. And so we sort of just, we decided to go back down, go and have, like, a little rest, a bit defeated. But one of the professors, he was like, no, no, no. I'm just going to stay a little bit longer and just sort of do a bit of brushing around. And then he found it. (laughs) And it was just... It was only 10 centimetres away from the, the <laughs> neck itself. It just drifted a bit. And there it was. And we were like, yeah, of course it's there. <laughs> it, we, we thought it was there all along. And so when we got back to camp, we suddenly just realised that we'd actually found something really important. We are just like, wow, we just found that. That's amazing. This is going to change everything. And so that new plesiosaur with the skull is the only one with a complete skull preserved and it is a new, like, species to science.
0: Wait, that's the only skull that exists from that time?
1: From, of that type, yeah. Just, cause they're so, like, rare, and they're very fragile, the bones are really thin, so they get crushed quite a lot, so most of the other skulls from that group of plesiosaurs are just bits, mm. so this is the only one that is complete.
0: Okay, let's rewind. How did Aubrey get into digging for plesiosaurs in the first place? And where do you even look for one? Well, to start out with, she, like many of us, loved dinosaurs.
1: I was absolutely obsessed with dinosaurs. And growing up as well, I did still keep that interest. As a sort of in my, when I was like nine or 10, 11, absolutely loved dinosaurs. When I started to go to sort of college, I became, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I didn't think it was possible to become a paleontologist. I didn't think it was like a real thing because no one had told me that you could actually become a paleontologist, that it was possible.
0: Aubrey's moment of realization came when she was in college.
1: During the final semester of my undergraduate, I was actually on exchange to, on Svalbard So I was on Spitsbergen up in the Arctic. And being up there and seeing how amazing this place was and how full of fossils it was and just it was such a brilliant experience being out there on the almost the final frontier exploring fossils that no one had ever really seen before and animals as well that are very rare and that you don't see every day. I decided just one day I just sat down and I, I really have to do some sort of research on Svalbard. I don't want to leave. And that's when it sort of popped into my mind almost that I'd seen a talk that this professor in Oslo had given on fossils from Svalbard and that he was running a project. So I just dropped him an email and asked like, hey, do you want another student on your project? And so we arranged to meet and that's how I basically got involved. But it was just one day I just sat down and decided this is what I wanna do. I wanna stay on Svalbard, I don't wanna leave.
0: (laughs) So Aubrey found out what she wanted and she made it happen. That's so cool. It is really cool. And Svalbard, the place where Aubrey goes to dig, is also really cold.
1: So when I first arrived there, it was in January, which is the dark time. So the sun never rises. It's just dark all the time. And it was minus 25, minus 30 degrees every day. But going into February, which is when I sort of decided to to make my decision, You just had the sort of, the light was starting to come back and you get sort of this nice blue eerie glow. And it was just so absolutely stunning and beautiful that I didn't want to leave it. There's not not that many people there. It's just the, it's an Arctic island. So there are polar bears, there's foxes, Arctic foxes and reindeer, no trees. It's just an ice sheet pretty much with mountains on covered in snow.
0: Wow. That sounds like a pretty extreme environment to work in. Does Aubrey spend all her time digging fossils in the freezing cold, or are there other parts of her job? There's a lot more to it. Aubrey told us about it.
1: So after the discovery, the specimens would, or the fossils would be transported back to the museum, and then at the museum we would start the very time-consuming process of removing all of the excess rock and gluing them back together so that Um, we can research them and sort of try and compare them to other species or other types of fossils. And this process, so the preparation of the fossils, takes between 1,000 and 2,000 hours for the big specimens. So it's it's very time consuming. So it will often take years between excavation and actual sort of finished product. So after we've done the preparation, that's when the sort of hard work in describing the specimen starts. So then you take all the photos of the the bones and you have to travel around other museums around the world and compare them to what you've got and see, is it similar? Is it different? How is it similar? How is it different? And then you write that up in a scientific article and publish it. But it does mean a lot of traveling, so I've been to a lot of different museums and looking at at different bones. And then, of course, there is writing as well.
0: So lots of skills involved and tasks to do. You have to observe closely and write and glue things together, but you also get to travel and talk to other scientists from all over the world. Wow, that sounds like a lot of fun, actually. Definitely. And finally, we ask Aubrey what the one thing is she always takes in the field with her. It's definitely different from my answer, which by the way, is dark chocolate and nuts. Aubrey says.
1: A pillow, totally a pillow. First year I went, I did not have a pillow with me. And I was, I also had a quite a thin sleeping bag. I was very cold and not very happy when I was sleeping. So yeah, it's important to have certain comforts from home when you are camping in the middle of nowhere with no phone, no nothing. You need to be able to rest when you're working that hard. And having a pillow absolutely made it a lot more easier for me. It made it way easier because then I could sleep like in comfort basically. Without a pillow, it does get hard after a while. Sleeping on top of bundles of clothes is not fun. <laughs> so, yeah, pillow.
0: Thanks for listening, future explorers. If you want to learn more about Aubrey Roberts and her work, check out the book No Boundaries About Women Scientists and Explorers. It was written by me, Gabby Salazar, and my fellow explorer, Claire Fiesler.
1: That's it for this episode. Join us next week as we talk to a planetary biologist about her work looking for life on other planets. How We Explore is hosted by Gabby Salazar and Manaza Alam. This podcast was written by Allison Shaw and Emily Everhart. Rebecca Cunningham is our audio producer, and Claire Fiesler is our editorial consultant and field recording specialist. Music composed by Ijo Leo, with guitar by Axel Borgmo. Curtis Cross is our audio engineer. Gabby Salazar is our producer, and Emily Everhart is our executive producer. Special thanks to all interviewees for agreeing to participate in this project.